Okay, so welcome to the Truth to Power show on Radio Free Brooklyn. I'm your host, VJR Nathan, and with us today is the uh, co-host, Jessica Hines. Welcome, Jessica. Thank you. I am very delighted to be here. Um, okay, cool. So now, uh, with us today, our guest, special guest is poet Tess Congo. Welcome, Tess. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you, thank you. So, um, what we'll do is we'll uh, start a little bit, but just tell us a little bit about yourself and where you were born and what your earliest memories are. That sure. might be a good place to start the conversation, yeah. <clears throat> um, so, I was born in New Hampshire. Um, and a little bit about myself, uh, I think I always had a sense for cities. Uh-huh. So growing up, I uh, I loved the idea of Paris. My mom moved us to Amsterdam when I was 11, and that was where I started writing regularly. Uh-huh. Um, so kind of concurrently, I started writing poetry, fiction, and then I was journaling every day. Um, and that's basically continued to today. Yeah. Um, so that's like 17 years of writing. Wow. And what, what about in New Hampshire? What, what, do you have an early memory that you, I mean, comes comes to mind? What, do, can you look back to see uh, what you think about, because uh, you said you now in New Hampshire, you're living in a city or? Um, I mean, as much city as you yeah, can get in New yeah. Hampshire. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I'm from southern New Hampshire, so uh-huh. like the Wyndham Dairy area, which is about 20 minutes from the Queen City, Manchester. Um, but yeah, I, I don't think I necessarily have memories like encapsulating New Hampshire as my earliest memories, but I'm one of six children. So, um, my, one of my earliest memories, I was, I think like one and a half and I was in a bedroom with my sister. I just remember it being like very white and there being the closet doors that had like kind of the slats in them. Yeah. <laughs> and there's no like real purpose to this memory, uh-huh. but yeah. it's just like, I have it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, are you the youngest of? I'm the fourth child. Okay. I'm the youngest of six. So oh, hey. all girls, all girls. Yeah. yeah. Mostly girls, five girls and one boy. Yeah. I have this strange memory of, uh, I don't even know if it's like a manufactured memory or if it's something <laughs> that I just pieced together a dream or something, but being in the crib and trying to crawl up and, and, Go to the higher ground, higher mm. the, like the nightstand next to it, and then getting stuck there and, and, and like screaming or whatever. I just had the, oh, no. the image. I just had the image oh, wow. of crawling up and, and going there, and I don't even know where that comes from. I don't know where that. For me, yeah. that just brought up. I was like, that's like every ten years of my life. Like, I'm reaching for that next place. I get there. I get really scared. I scream for help. No one comes. Um, yeah, what a what a very uh, like symbolic a tra- memory. Like a traumatic uh, scar, I guess you might call it. Yeah. But uh, yeah, yeah. So let's talk a little bit about your writing and about how you started. Sure. You were living in Paris when you started uh, Amsterdam. Oh, Amsterdam is name. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, no problem. Then, yeah. So tell us about how, uh, what are the first things you remember writing or uh, um, what kinds of stuff did you write? Yeah, so I think writing is kind of in my blood. My great-grandmother wrote poetry as well as my mom. Um, so like my mom always gave us notebooks to write in or draw in. Um, so I really had an enriching experience in the art realm growing up, um, in the sense that no one ever discouraged me from it. Whereas yeah. I've heard of other artists who have like really. Yeah, that. no, that's yeah. such a huge thing. So many of the writers that I work with, um, you know, it, it come, it, uh, individuals who have a lot of struggle um, as adults, as writers, with just continuing on. It has, so much has to do with 
were was their creativity validated mm. and encouraged as a child versus was their creativity which often causes chaos and can be messy did the parents respond with oh no 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 control which was not meant to discourage their creativity but often did and so i find the people the adults who consistent writing is easier for them mm. are people who grew up with families that um and like my family was a mess like they mm. were crazy my mom was nuts but she always encouraged my creativity. Mm-hmm. I think that's why I may struggle with, you know, personality disorder and insomnia and personal relationships and commitment uh, with humans. But when it comes <laughs> to writing, I'm like every day and it's, I'm excited to do it. Um, so that's amazing that you had a supportive environment. Yeah. Yeah. I think definitely. I think, you know, for people who haven't had that supportive environment, Creativity can be kind of a shameful thing for them, yeah. which is horrible because we're all creative, but like some people just haven't tapped into it. Yeah, I remember I read uh, the Wizard of Oz series as oh, a kid. Yeah. Uh, the, the, my sister <laughs> read it to me when pre-reading, uh, and uh, I wrote uh, in like the third grade or fourth grade or something. I wrote, I started writing the book, The Professor Was It in the Land of Waz. <laughs> which is basically like this professor who had created a universe in a, uh, in a little test tube or a little, little small micro-universe. And him and his talking dog went into the universe to save the prince. So I, uh-huh. I got pretty far into it. And then a monster, their, their journey, a monster going eat all of them. And I was like, I did, I did. <laughs> so I was like, I already a lot of that. A lot of their traveling company. And then, I think having and, a monster yeah. come in and yeah. eat all the characters is a yeah. great way to end any story. Yeah, yeah. Just if you don't know what to do, guys, <laughs> just, and then a monster <laughs> and killed everyone. And just Godzilla at the end of it. Yeah. I would have been fine with that ending for Game yeah. of Thrones. I was open to it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> good, good. So, um, yeah, why don't we uh, talk a little bit about, like, um, your, uh, now, what was what was some of the other things you wrote? Like, what genre did you write? You said poetry, but also did you write, did yeah. you write fiction and such? Or Yeah, so it was funny. Um, one of the first things that happened when we moved to the Netherlands, um, we were staying at a friend's house of one of my moms over um, in a suburb of Amsterdam before we got our apartment And our first morning there, I woke up, I was on a couch opposite my sister who was sleeping, the one who was in the earliest memory I have. Yeah. And um, I just had this story idea and it was this fantasy story about um, a princess whose sisters are kidnapped. And it's this whole story that like spun out and I was just writing for an hour and my sister wakes up at some point when like the sun is rising. It was because I woke up in the dead of night, basically. And she's like, what are you doing? Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, nothing, go back to sleep. I close my notebook. But for the duration of my time in Amsterdam, we were there five months, I wrote the story every day. Oh, and so I still haven't finished it, but I worked on it for years. And it's one of the things lately, I'm like, I need to go back to that. It's always like in my head. So yeah. I, it was a fantasy series. And then I, I've had some short stories published. Um, and like, I've written other fiction that's, you know, of this world. <laughs> yeah. So what what were some of the books growing up that you read that were so oh. impressionable about you, impressionable on you? Yeah. So I, uh, reading was a huge thing growing up. My sister, Kate, used to read the Karen books to me. I don't know if you guys know mm-hmm. that series. It's just about a girl named Karen. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> <Aptly> <laughs> named. There yeah. were a million of the books. And so 
um, after she read those to me, I finally started reading on my own. And I really liked the Little House on the Prairie series. I read tons of biographies as a kid. Um, I was just fascinated by royals and people who stood up for injustice like Gandhi and Rosa Parks. And yeah, I was I was just really drawn to what was real. Yeah. So uh, yeah, I grew I grew up watching the series, the Little House. The I never watched, you never watched it. Yeah, <laughs> I, it's I, very I didn't watch yeah. or read it. I feel like I need to. I get to now as an adult. I get to experience something that so many people experienced when they were children. So I'm very excited. That's on my list of things to to oh, read good. and to watch. Yeah, the series uh, was very good. And uh, uh, but anyway, uh, talking a little about travel and such. Mm. I, I know you've been. You've traveled a lot and yeah. tell us a little bit about your travels and where, yeah. if you were to go, if you were to live anywhere, where would it be? Or Oh, that's, yeah. that's so funny. Um, so I was traveling in the fall for a while and I fell in love with Romania, oh, yeah. which like people don't normally think of for a place to travel. You know, it's always like Prague or London or Paris. Um, yeah. But yeah, I found the Romanian people really delightful. Um they obviously have a history that's rooted in a lot of communism and other struggles. Um, but I fell in love with Transylvania, where they have all these old Saxon-founded cities. It was because I think it was the king of Hungary um, had control over Transylvania. And in order to protect Hungary from the Ottoman Empire, he was like, hey, Saxons, come here. You can have these lands, build cities, and also protect them. Um, so you look at places like um, Brasov, Sigishora, all these, all these beautiful old German towns, and um, they just have the loveliest architecture. So one of the places I really loved over there was Brasov. Um, so I would totally buy a house there and just yeah. write and hang out with my Romanian friends. <laughs> cool, cool. Yeah, I, I did a trip in 98. You did to yeah, Romania? To, to, uh, all around Europe. So all around Eastern okay. Europe, like a circle from uh, mm -hmm. uh, Italy. And then we took that. We went circle around to back to Italy. So it was very interesting. And it was good to go through Eastern Europe and, mm -hmm. and experience that. Yeah. So um, what do you call it? Um so, yeah, yeah. So, why don't we listen to a poem of yours okay. then? Yeah, I want to listen sure. to something that you've written. Uh, I'll give you a moment to pull it up. Thank you. Yeah, I, I have not yet been to Romania, but I did spend a decent amount of time in Budapest, uh -huh. which mm. I, I was like, the whole time I was just like, oh my gosh, this is just like so lovely. And I was like, it's like Brooklyn, only inexpensive. <laughs> But just as like and beautiful full of culture and like, you know, like the hangout cultures felt very similar to, to my time, mm. um, what I do in Brooklyn. Um, but yeah, I highly recommend to anyone, like, just get over to Eastern Europe. There's some really, really great stuff over there. Yeah. For certain. Uh, so here's a poem called Dear Thursday. Dear Thursday, I committed too quickly to saving myself. Open doors are getting worse. I'm trying to reintroduce men to my diet. Tuesday, I'm scheduled for a man yelling at me on the train. I think if I leave by six, Lior's kiss will make my lips swell. And that means I won't have to remember Sam, who told me to dress in daisies. 
to let others in, he said, you have to breathe the daisies out. But what if we're all just light hiding in potato sacks? I think about Adrian, kisses in the grass, dead ants in my hair. Michael said, men are afraid of women, but I feel like a child. In today's yesterday, I felt the most alive in Belgium, a nightmare that sounds romantic. The moon violined my throat open, and I couldn't stop lifting my soul from under my tongue, even knowing it's supposed to be the prince's kiss that dislodges this glass from my mouth. Not that I think about it that often. Probably the Romanian the most. He wouldn't stop. Desperately lonely. Thank you, thank you. Yay. Snaps. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so it was very nice. Uh, tell us a little bit about the evolution of the poem or your poetry in general and how sure. the creative process a little bit, yeah. Yeah, so I think, um, especially with poetry, I try to start, um, prior to writing a poem, I like to read other Mm -hmm. people's poetry for a half hour. And if I can, if I won't disturb my roommates, (laughs) I'll read aloud because I think it gets me in, um, kind of the frame for, um, writing sonically and sound is really important to me whether it's fiction, poetry, nonfiction, or content I write for companies. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I like to read for a half hour aloud, and then I just dive into writing. Um, usually it's, like, two, three poems that are going to be total shit. Yeah. Um, but then by the third poem, I, I typically have something going. It's interesting. Um, I often find that for like the thing prolific writers versus people who tend to stop and go more of is that prolific writers just recognize that there's like a warm up that you need to go mm-hmm. through. And, you know, um, in meditative writing, that's why I like doing meditative writing before I write anything in form, because it just is like, it's, it's like going to the bar as a ballerina. It's just like you're doing <laughs> your stretches. It's just like, if you're an athlete warming up your body before you get on the field. And I think some people get so scared that, they're so scared to write poor, to write something that isn't good mm-hmm. that they stop and they stop themselves before they get that chance to get to the good stuff. Mm-hmm. And so I'm always happy when other writers admit and are very open about the fact that, yeah, like the first, and I do that um, with the poem I just wrote. I, you know, I'll just write it. I wrote it three times in a row. Mm-hmm. And the third one, finally, I was like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. That's what it really, that's the perspective. That's the, you know, and just, I encourage anyone who wants to get into poetry or any writing form that just seeing something that you've written and being like, oh, is Mm. a natural part of the process. And that if you just keep playing around with it, eventually, you know, you find what it really wants to be. And so thank you for. Yeah. Of course. (laughs) So also I tend to, um, you know, when I'm writing, I tend to also, I'm always like chewing on something, like chewing on like meditatively, Mm. as, as Jessica was saying. You know, thinking about like di- reflecting on different things or analyzing different things. And then ultimately, it's kind of like uh, I try to get the most direct way or express what I'm, my mm. thought is or what my insight is in the most direct way. So, what I'd ask you is like, what makes you feel most empowered or what kind of aspects of life uh, help you inspire you or make you feel most empowered or most you feel most in with your truth? 
You know, because mm-hmm. part of the show is, of course, truth to power being yeah. meaning like, you know, we're finding our personal truths and, and, and letting it empower ourselves in our communities. So what would you say is when you get in your zone or when you really uh, feel inspired? Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I always think of this Alice Siebold quote. I might be messing up her last name, so apologies. Uh, yeah. But it's from her memoir, Lucky. And it's yeah. about being raped in college and going through the whole process of getting a conviction from the person who raped her. And she was like the perfect rape video or video person in the sense that at the time she was wearing like a cardigan sweater. She was a virgin. She like was a good student. So all these things that made her at that time, like the perfect victim to get justice. Yeah. Um, And she has this quote in her memoir. That's like the power of the brutalized, the oppressed and victimized is like words, essentially. It's what they Mm. can say. It's how they can tell their story. And so some of the most empowering moments for me in writing is always the ones that kind of connect to something that was a really hard emotional event, whether it was traumatizing or just something where something someone had done something wrong that I could address in writing and feel better about because I, I took control back with speaking essentially, you know, if you're silent or ashamed about something that's happened to you, then you, you can't even access that kind of power because you're not confronting it. You're just feeling the shame of it. And I think, I think that's, um, Something that's really problematic in people who need to heal. They're not facing what it is that's harmed them. Mm. Yeah, yeah, definitely language seems to be, you know, the ability to to carve into that undifferentiated, uh, you know, feelings. You know, when we think about feelings, when we think about emotions, we think about that landscape within ourselves that, that's just kind of diffuse mm-hmm. and not, uh, not articulated. And once we get in there and, like, navigate it, and be able to give language to it, to be able to create mm. something out of it helps helps us to process and and make it accessible to the human condition. Yeah, yeah. I think I've often when I'm talking to my writers because sometimes they'll not want to go into certain areas mm. and like it it'll it'll be bubbling up, but they'll refuse it. And mm. a lot of writers avoid because it gets scary. And I just tell them, I'm like, listen, you've been shot by many arrows. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, right now you are wandering around bleeding mm-hmm. and leaving this trail. And mm-hmm. I'm like, if you want it to heal, you've got to pull the arrow out. Yeah. And I think that writing for a lot of people is that act of pulling the arrow out. Mm-hmm. You just need to get it outside of yourself. And once it's outside of yourself, also, you can actually like hold it in your hand and, and turn it around and see it from different angles. Mm-hmm. Whereas when it's just inside of you emotionally, you you really are blind to it. You can feel it, but yeah. you can't see it. And so, mm. you know, I really believe that writing, even if you have no desire to be a professional writer, just writing as an act of processing mm-hmm. and understanding self and and understanding other people is and, you know, it's it's free. That's aside from the, the pen and the paper, mm. um, which most of the time you can steal from someone <laughs> that I, you know, come steal a pen yeah. from me or from right. the, the waitress. <laughs> um, but, yeah, it is something that I, I, you know, I wish more people, you know, someone like I only two people, my myself and my stepmom are the only two people. My fa- and my dad are the only people that really write. And I have a lot of other people in my family that I see struggling with that. But they also have a strange thing where they they 
they just don't want to associate as uh, as a writer in any mm-hmm. way. And so, um, yeah, I mean, it's it is something that uh, has been a huge process for me in healing my my mm-hmm. not, or not even healing, but just allowing myself to be open to healing by understanding what I'm actually upset about or, or what mm-hmm. where the pain is actually coming from. Mm. Exactly. Yeah. And it isn't even like such a simple process that, oh, you write about this and you'll be completely healed. But it's a start. And I think it's an important step to any sort of grief. Yeah, it seems like a lot of people have the perspective. A lot of people uh, are thinking about story in terms of like, um, you know, conventions mm-hmm. and, you know, story structures and all that. But for me, at least in my practice, and I think what I'm hearing from you guys as well in your practice is that has to do with exploring consciousness and exploring the meaning yeah. of and giving language to certain territories of our experience and our experience mm-hmm. of life and being able to articulate that and be able to bring that into something that we can share with others mm-hmm. and we can br- bring other people in on our inner experience. So if I were to say like, you know, in regards to like a lot of people are like introversion, extroversion, you know, mm-hmm. kind of going in and going out. So what is your take on that? And do you, do you consider yourself to be extroverted or introverted? So I always describe myself as an extroverted introvert. Yeah. <laughs> and people are like, what is that? Yeah. But for me, it's just like, I love being social. I love people. And I love connecting with people through conversation. But at the same time, I definitely um, can get overwhelmed by social interactions. Mm. After a party, I'll be like, all right, I don't need to see anyone for like two days. <laughs> yeah. So I definitely draw back in and being alone is really important for me. Yeah. I, I think for most writers, I mean, I I would say I'm definitely I'm a shy introvert, but I'm loud. And when I get anxious, I talk too much. And so people mm. confuse me as a social person who's really outgoing <laughs> all the time. And I'm like, yeah. oh, no, this is pure nervousness. Like, yeah. I have nothing to say right now. <laughs> but I think, you know, especially for the idea, you know, we were talking about, you know, most of the time when people are talking about story, they're talking about what I call like audience structure, mm. which is you know, taking the audience on a journey. And, but before you ever get there, I think there does need to be this introversion of mm. the structure, the you structure, the author structure, this mm. idea of let me go in and story mining, as I call it, like pull it out of myself, like, like gold from the ground <laughs> and, and see what it really is before I start, before you start shaping it into something for anyone else. And I think that a lot of people try to do those two things at the same time. Mm. Or they're like digging into themselves, trying to find it fully formed for someone outside of them. And and only every once in a while will you actually, you know, I think about every 10 years, I find a story just in me and I'm like, oh, that's about done. That's that doesn't really need a lot of work there. Yeah. Um, the rest of the time, it's just like, yeah, like you have to be introverted. You have to go inside. You have to find whatever that messiness is. But then Mm -hmm. once you pull it out, then you can arrange it on the page in a way where it will communicate, which Mm -hmm. is also, I think in poetry, it takes me about three drafts to figure out to the first draft. I'm like, what's going on inside me? The second draft is, you know, what does this want to be? And then the third draft is usually, um, what do I actually want to communicate to my audience or what is their interaction Mm -hmm. as they're reading it? Is this something that, you know, if it's a screenplay versus a poem versus something that's going to be read on the radio, um, so, but I think the most successful writers are the ones who can be both introverted and extroverted mm-hmm. when the appropriate time arises. I think going into like drafts, I'm impressed that you can get that through with three drafts. Cause I spend oh, like, well, uh, Oh, for the, yeah. okay. <laughs> on a 
on my best day. Like what I I just mean that like I'll do like 15 first yeah. drafts, you know. Yeah. Yeah, I I get really obsessive with poems yeah. and so like when I write a poem if I'm like I'm like, oh, there's something to this poem. I'll spend four to five hours for like the mm. first chunk writing. Mm. And there are poems that are like 50 drafts in. And I'm still <laughs> like, mm, I don't know. You need something else. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, for me, poems are usually either like, it's an, it's what happened at the moment. And I'm like, it's done. It's like a photograph. Mm. It's just yeah. meant to be more of a photograph. Wow. And then there's other ones. Like if I do lyrics for songs, that mm. that's just like, I feel like I read Leonard Cohen about his process. And I'm like, yeah like 20 years for one song. That's kind of how I get, but, mm. but sometimes with poetry, I'm a little bit more Bob Dylan. who's just like, I don't know. There it goes. Like <laughs> yeah. that's how it's going to be. Um, but yeah, but I think it, it kind of depends on what the purpose of the poem is, is, is there something you're trying to get to, or are you simply trying to share an experience that's happening at the moment? Mm. And I think that, you know, that you can do both. Um, but, but yeah, just if anyone's out there, you don't have to torture yourself. Yeah. I mean, I have. But you can. <laughs> if you want yeah. to. I also have two different styles. Like, I have the personal poems where I'm like writing, I'm mm. trying to capture like a moment or a thought or meditation on some memory. And then I have like kind of structured poems where I have like a game of the scene or whatever. Like, an imp- mm. I use like an improv kind of a format where I had uh, Slubri Sadhana, which is the mm. second book of a celebrity poems. I use celebrity. Oh. Stuff. That's fun. So I did like uh, a bunch of experiments where I had mm. certain rules where I'd use like Google or I'd look up like who Nona Ryder is mm. and I would look up things people were saying about her uh. or celebrity gossip mm-hmm. or stories. And then I have certain rules and, and try to mesh together something that would fit that game, you know? Mm. So, yeah. Tell us a little bit about like if you're, if you're creating, are you working in a collection or? I am. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about that and how you envision a collection or, yeah. Yeah. So, um. I have kind of ideas for two different collections and I'm in the process of trying to figure out if I want to meld them together or keep them separate. Mm. Um, I'm actually going to grad school in the fall for poetry. So I'm hoping that will help. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, I'm really excited. Um, It's Hunter's program um, and it's great. Yeah. And it's such an intimate program where I feel really blessed that um, I'm going to be entering it. Um, so one, one collection is kind of focused on, um, an extension from my honors thesis when I was an undergrad at the University of New Hampshire. And so that was kind of a focus on, um, domestic upheaval, like anything that could go wrong on the home front. Um, and I kind of used, excuse me, fairy tales and other stories to kind of filter that. So I have a poem Featuring the wonderful Wizard of Oz images. Mm. Oh, nice. Um, and then the second one kind of delves more into body and what it means to be a woman and what it means to be American and what it means um, to be, you know, um, a survivor of sexual assault. Um, so, yeah, I, th- I think they have overlapping themes, but I'm trying to determine if they would have stronger narratives if they were separate. It's interesting. Sometimes there's sometimes where I feel like in collections or, you know, scenes, if I'm working on uh, a screenplay or something where I'm like, like, I want a harmony with it. You know, I think she yes. harmonies. But then there's other pieces where I'm like, oh, no, no, the, the, the dissonance of this actually, the, you know, the form is meaning. And mm-hmm. so sometimes I think 
that you can look at it and be like, is there is there meaning in the slight separation or dissonance mm-hmm. of this or the contradiction or the paradox of this? Um, yeah, no, sometimes I really love it when I look at something and I'm just like, oh, like the fa- like, it, you know, the difference between, you know, maybe like Beethoven versus Eric Satie, who's one of my favorite composers, where there's this little bit of it just feels just slightly off. And mm. that's kind of what makes it feel more true to me. I connect mm. more to his work than a lot of other um uh, uh musician so um i don't know but it sounds it sounds like it'll be lovely either way i hope yeah. so and i think part of my struggle is that i really admire poetry books that do have a narrative form so like some of my favorite books are like sharon old stag's leap and like nick flynn's books that revolve around his mother's death and the b1 and, um, you know, I, I wrote to you that I've been reading um, J.P. Howard's Say Mirror, which revolves around her mom and the history of living in Harlem. And so I think because I admire those books so much, I, I feel kind of compelled to have more of a narrative form. Mm. Yeah, I think uh, uh, for me, at least like having a, an image or a grounding mm-hmm. image or something that really connects to like contextual or contextualized, because mm-hmm. when you go... I feel like poetry sometimes goes really deep into the inner landscape and then it becomes a little disconnected from, you know, what what the context of it is, right. you know, totally. so that then we're like kind of suddenly in a field and it's like, how do we get here? Where are we? And how does this connect at all to the uh, common shared experience? You know, mm-hmm. it just feels a little disconnected. Yeah, I yeah. think it's interesting because you were talking about like narrative and then, uh, you know, I often think what what's helpful for me in poetry is not not narrative as much, but metaphor. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. to me, structure and metaphor, if I can find the metaphor of a piece, then I never have to think of structure. I never have to think of the narration. Like it just, for some reason, you know, works for me. And, you know, so like I suddenly got a lot of poetry just out of this metaphor of, you know, the a house being our body. Mm-hmm. Of, you know, and, and I suddenly was just like, oh, I could write like 20 things just based off of, variations on that metaphor Mm -hmm. um and so yeah i think it's interesting how we you know the stitching that pulls together a collection of work and how some people think in you know shades or colors or someone in location and any of those things can be can be ties between smaller pieces to create a whole Mm. definitely yeah i always think about metaphor because you know the definition of course is like you know when you comparing two things and such but Whenever I see it in poetry, it's like it's very different. It's like really embodied uh, of the image and really and I just feel like it does the, the definition or the idea that people have when they look for metaphor. It doesn't fails to capture the image but for me, at least the way I use it is like imagistic and mm-hmm. getting into the thing. And, then, and, you know, and it's just reductive to be like, well, this is, you know, and, <laughs> you know, this kind of thing. I just see I feel like it's a totally different terrain when you're actually exploring metaphor yeah. or whatever or images or. You know, try drunk mm-hmm. parallels. So, what do you what do you get out of that, or what do you? How do you? How have you explored like a something? And, and can you reduce it? Can, is it even reducible to uh, this is comparable to this and a lot? Um, yeah. I mean, I, I think in narrative, I'm not really necessarily thinking about reducing it, but yeah. expanding it, expanding exploring it, yeah. it more. So I, um, you know, I, I kind of think of like Natalie Albert's um, book Indictus. Um, where she has a lot of poems that just recur, uh, have recurring language 
and you know the whole the whole book delves into sexual assault and surviving that and speaking that um so i think yeah i think in terms of metaphor and images and language i like that sense of repetition as a method of exploration and i notice especially in like certain memoirs that the ones that really strike me or the language that really strikes me is when there's something repeated but it has a different message or meaning the next time it's repeated Mm -hmm. because you have more context between the repetition of it um and so because I enjoy that so much and because that's really important in the process of reading, I would like to give that to whoever's reading my work. <laughs> no, I love I also there's some like tingling satisfaction. Yes. And the, one of the, what I realized, I think, when because um, I was listening to I think Fiona Apple is such a great poet with um, her lyrics and she has this one song where the refrain is like, I'll get them back. I'll get them back to mean like revenge. Mm-hmm. And then on the last one, it's meaning to like have oh. them back. Mm-hmm. And and I was trying to figure out, I was like, why is it so satisfying? And I think part of it is that as writers, we rely on the word and we love the written word so much. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, you know, lang- language is just uh, a form of communication and it's it's a labeling to represent something intangible Mm -hmm. and that there's an inherent there's so many possibilities for miscommunication with it and and just for some it's almost like the the fragileness of or the 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 existential like you never really know what someone means when they say this thing is also kind of what gives it Mm -hmm. meaning and powerful and and it makes it exciting and you know i just i get so fascinated with how especially studying like the neuroscience of dialogue and mm. screenwriting mm. where, you know, 90% of the communication is happening in the body and the action in comparison mm-hmm. with the words and that the dialogue is actually just, you learn more about a character and intention and relationship when people speak more than you learn information because mm. most of what we communicate, we get through, through other means. And so I, I do think it's kind of funny that I'm like, Oh, words are so, meaningless at the same time i'm like but they're also the number one way i used to communicate to people in my profession so i just think there's something kind of wonderful but scary about the idea that this could mean so many different things and not knowing at certain times what the intention of the author or the person speaking to you is really meaning by that Mm. Mm -hmm. yeah i think that language has um Language and the, and the mind and the experience are all connected, obviously, because we're um, we're experiencing the world through, you know, the tip of the iceberg is obviously how we're expressing it in our words, how we're saying it, all this kind of thing. And that when the writer is writing, they're kind of triggering off all these processes in the reader so that then we're able to access, you know, things that they, they may either that they may not be aware of in their own processes because we have all these associations with the different words, choices, and we want to be able to find the trigger points, you know, we want to be able mm-hmm. to find the places where for the reader, they'll be able to have that catharsis. They'll be able to have that experience mm-hmm. and guide them through it. So that then it's not just a question of, you know, setting off a bomb or whatever, but it's mm-hmm. a question of like really uh, guiding them through a kind of a, a good experience in our writing, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's, it's a discovery process, writing and also reading. And I think, um, you know, I believe it's Robert Frost who says no, no discovery. Um, no surprise for the writer, no surprise for the reader. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, that's definitely something I I wish more people practice, and especially even you know professionals of writing as an act of discovery before an act of execution. Yeah, mm. because I feel like if you're just writing to execute. Like there's no art in that. Like the art, com- mm-hmm. art requires a personal sacrifice. Art requires uh, a digging into the self. And so there's a lot of people, especially, I mean, unfortunately in the film and TV industry, there's tons of people that are doing great things, but there's also some people that are just, they're craftsmen and they're, mm-hmm. they're crafting stories, but they're not sharing any part of their soul in that. Mm. And so I'm like, that's kind of the difference between what I would call art and craft is craft mm-hmm. is something that you can look at and you can say that's beautiful but you don't learn anything about the person who made it by looking at it, mm. you know, mm. versus when you, when at least in the early drafts, when you look at it as an act of discovery, when, you know, and I, and I often tell people, I'm like, if you want to write really, really good stories, find something that you feel in your body or in your soul, mm. but that you don't actually understand. Mm. And if you start there, like whatever you find is, even if it doesn't end up being a great story for other people, it will be an amazing journey for yourself to write. But I find a lot of people want to start with the things they already know. Mm. And I'm like, that to me, feels like the most boring thing <laughs> to write about are things I already know versus yeah. that place where, you know, first we write to understand, we write mm. to, you know, figure things out and to, or to know ourselves better so that we can then know other people better and, and validate their experiences. Um, yeah, I'm definitely a believer in the kind of, uh, I had an episode called The Journeyman. Mm-hmm. So I'm definitely in the journeyman theory that, or the thesis that we kind of articulated in that episode, in which uh, the writer or the artist is going like the shaman, going into these undiscovered mm-hmm. psychological mm-hmm. territories and trying to, you know, pave way for the rest of the side to go in there and you know just like in exploring you know how the journeyman goes out into undiscovered territory mm-hmm. and then sets the groundwork for the civilization to move in or or sets yes, the groundwork the, yeah. the avant-garde yeah. one of my favorite <laughs> things yeah. to study in the arts which is not i think when i was younger i thought avant-garde meant weird and nonsensical but then i realized that oh this is meant to be you know those who go into the the, the woods and they clear the way to be mm. able to build up. And, yeah. you know, I think first we have to do that in ourselves. Whereas with each piece, it should feel avant-garde. It should feel mm. like you're going yeah. into, you know, the jungle, you're diving into the ocean, you're disappearing into the desert so that when you come back out, the knowledge that you've gained from that experience mm-hmm. becomes, you know, what you can pass on to your reader. Um, and we're doing it not, not just for, um, you're doing it for ourselves, but also like for, uh, you know, to set a precedence for others so that then others will be able mm-hmm. to repeat or, or replicate yeah. that process. And then they can have, and the words are just the surface, but we want to get them to that place where they can have that uh, same catharsis or mm-hmm. we, we want to do, we have our catharsis so that the others can have that facilitated exactly. catharsis. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that is the role of, I mean, the reason why artists are needed, you know, which is mm-hmm. not just for entertainment and it's not just like, Oh, this is fun. But I'm like, Art teaches us how to live. It teaches us how to understand. It, it teaches yeah. us how to process things that are repressed inside of us. Because if if we didn't have books or movies to, you know, like I will like I'll spend three years on something so that my audience can have the same experience in ninety minutes. And yeah. like that is our job. We are the emotional workhorses. We're that is necessary for a society to grow. Mm. And that's why I get so frustrated sometimes when arts programs get cut, yeah. because I'm like, I don't think you understand that without the movies that you watched, without the books that you read, 
Mm. Like there's no way you would have the emotional intelligence you would have. So yes, um, you know, maybe there are other things that build up your one part of your intelligence, but without emotional intelligence, I'm very scared for where our society would be headed. And, and I think that we are starting to get into a, a little bit of a crisis with that, but I do, I see a lot of great work coming out of the arts. So I'm, I'm not, I'm not giving up hope yet. Yeah. Good, good. So we want to value also. I think what we're saying is value human experience and value that and mm-hmm. be able to get in touch with that human nature, that human, what makes us human and such. So what would you say about like, what, what, what do you think about like what makes you, you? Yeah, I think, um, you know, kind of going back to the necessity of art, I think there was a study that exhibited that people who read more have yeah. greater empathy, which mm-hmm. makes so much sense because you're constantly putting yourself in other people's shoes when you read a story. And I think that is a struggle for a lot of people to have that kind of openness to receive other people's experiences and to grant compassion to those who have different stories from them. So, um, yeah, I think in terms of what makes me me, it's definitely, you know, my history of reading, my history of writing, and then all the people I've been really blessed to have known. Um, you know, I, I talked about how uh, my upbringing really facilitated a rich place for me to write. And I think, so I'm, I'm extremely grateful to my upbringing and I'm extremely, my mom, um, and all the professors and teachers I had who mm. were really encouraging, who would write nice comments on my papers <laughs> yeah. and say, oh, this is nice. <laughs> and also just the community I have. Um, Brooklyn Poets has been a huge part of that in New York. Thank you, Jason Koo. <laughs> um, and all the great professors I've had through them. I think it's just a. I realize how important mm-hmm. that is that I didn't I forgot to mention earlier, which is I didn't want to say that if you didn't have a supportive childhood that yeah. you can't oh, write. For so sure. Like this idea you can that find it. There's, so, yeah. there's there's great community that you like, right. whether it's a, a group or one on one mentorship mm-hmm. or yeah. school. But there, you know, the answer is that like even if you do have a supportive childhood, like we still always need mm-hmm. that community and we always need someone validating our work. I mean, we need to validate our work more. And I find mm-hmm. that writers are kind of bad at that sometimes, but it is amazing how much just, wow, like this is awesome. Or even just a smiley face, like on a mm-hmm. piece of paper can, can absolutely, cause it's not just validating the work that's being done. It's validating the process. It's validating, yes. you know, the, the human just that you're human and that you're alive mm-hmm. and you're there. And so definitely seek out that community or classes or mentorship. Anyone, mm-hmm. if you desire to write, but you are struggling. Right. I recommend Brooklyn poets classes to anyone who wants to take them, who loves poetry. They, and even if you're not a poet, they're just a great way to open yourself to that creative plane. Yeah. So I, I understand you like, uh, or you've been watching Maria Kondo. So oh, I love Marie Kondo. Yeah. I was so pissed off with everyone's yeah. response to the Netflix series oh, because there yeah. was a lot of like racist connotations and also mm. diminishment of who she was as a woman, a businesswoman, yeah. <laughs> and just the whole process. Like if you actually read the book, which I did before the Netflix series, oh, okay, yeah. Yeah, so too. that like opened me up even more when the I was excited for the Netflix series. Yeah. And yeah, I just love that sense of surrounding yourself with items that bring you joy that really um, 
allow you to cultivate a space that encourages um, success in all areas of your life. I also yeah. recommend doing it with people. Yeah, that's how I because I'm a very minimalist. My mm-hmm. apartment is like curated to the point of like every little corner gives me joy. But I realized that with human beings in my life, yeah. I was a hoarder and mm-hmm. I just yeah. kind of went through and I was like, I'm holding you. You are not giving me joy. And <laughs> was able yeah. to let go of you know, so many, there was just a few friendships and there was definitely, but also people that aren't physically there, but you're holding in your mind, which is a lot of, um, a lot of the processing I've been doing over the past three months, um, is anger, um, at people who've hurt me. And when holding the, I realized the people that were hurting me the most weren't physically in my life anymore, Mm -hmm. but they were still emotionally and mentally Mm -hmm. in my life. And that was, you know, why forgiveness is so important for, you know, for me, I'm not forgiving them for them. I'm forgiving them for me so that I can banish them from, you know, my table in the banquet hall of my mind. And so, yeah, I think, you know, and I do think that the, unfortunately, but it's very common, I think with anything in media right now where, you know, like, like just, I'm amazed at how I think what's happening. Cause like the, the response to bird box, you know, which oh. I was like, why are people getting, it's a, it's just a move. It's a movie on Netflix. Yeah. And, and I was like, there are real things in this world. And that's when I realized, Oh, I was like, you know, it's hard. I don't know how to solve climate change. I don't know how to solve, you know, the issue with our economy. I don't know how to solve the education crisis, but I feel like I can defend a movie or I could tear it down. <laughs> yeah. And I do think we have a lot of misplaced injustice mm-hmm. anger. And I think that's why people are getting caught up in these smaller little things, because mm-hmm. I do think we have this like bigger angst about, you know, feeling like there's so many things that are problematic in our world right now, but feeling completely helpless to to do anything about it. Mm-hmm. And so we, we misdirect our, we take all that anger and rage or like I can do something about it and we apply it to like one little thing that we do feel like mm-hmm. we can have an effect on. And and so I think that's probably where a lot of that came from. Yeah, yeah I think there's a few points on uh, what you just said. Returning to forgiveness. I think forgiveness is always a gift to yourself first than the other person. Um I too struggle with it. (laughs) There's, um, I think it was Marianne Moore um, on like an Oprah Super Soul uh, podcast where she said that if you want to forgive someone or need to forgive someone, you should like wish them well for like a full month or something. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, to focus and meditate on someone every day who really, Mm -hmm. you know, caused you grief. That's such an interesting process. I'd like to try it. I don't know if I'd be successful in it. And returning to um, the level of outrage for Bird Box or mm-hmm. Marie Kondo um, or criticism, rather. Um, yeah, I think there is a lot of displacement. I mean, kind of returning to Game of Thrones. I'm a huge fan. And <laughs> after after the final episode aired, people had a petition for like a new yeah. season or a new movie or whatever yeah. it was. It's like if people mobilized... <laughs> For game of or for other causes as much as they did for Game of Thrones, yeah. think about what we could achieve in the world. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Even with the even with the Star Wars franchise has been, yeah. uh, you know, victim to that kind of yeah. uh, mobilization or that fake mobilization. I, some yeah. I've heard that Shallow. a lot of the stuff was like uh, actually 
Eastern European like mm-hmm. uh, trolls that were paid to oh, like really? create dissent or something. I don't know. I read some article that said <laughs> that they were like, you know, people that were just basically paid to like just stir the pot for Russian or Eastern European or something wow. like that. I'm not sure. I Don't quote me yeah. on that. Please research that before you start spreading that. But I know I read something somewhere sometime. I don't know. I wouldn't be sure. It doesn't surprise me. Anyway. Wikipedia. Yeah. There's yeah. a theory. That yeah. uh, no, I mean, I think, but I think it goes, that also calls back to why the arts are so important is because they're not just shows. Like we yeah. have real relationships mm-hmm. and, you know, I have a good friend and we both were talking about having recently gone through like deep depressions or sadnesses and how there are certain shows that we will watch like cheers Mm -hmm. or friends and, Mm -hmm. and the therapeutic level of like when you're at a place where you cannot actually be with other people and Mm -hmm. nor should you on some level, because Mm -hmm. you would just drain them of all, you'd be this emotional vampire and, and, being able to use that as a way not to completely disappear, but to give, you know, mm-hmm. I don't know if there's been tons of times where like those shows have just kept me going mm-hmm. through a tough period until I could get myself back to being a social person. And I think mm-hmm. it just shows how, you know, and, and certain books, you know, mm-hmm. like Sylvia Plath's Bell Jar saved oh, yeah. my life. And, and, and it's, I think it's a misconception. Like the research I've read, they talk about how when you're really, really sad, like, happy things make you feel even worse Mm. because you need something that reflects Mm. and says like, Mm -hmm. Hey, me too. And so Mm -hmm. when I'm in my darkest moments, like, yes, I will read the darkest things and listen to the darkest songs Mm. because they make me feel less lonely. And I'm like, Oh, other people have suffered on that level too, compared to what people yelling at me being like, Oh, just get over it or just be happy or Mm -hmm. smile through it or, you know, just watch, you know, this. So I think it's, I think it just shows how important, you know, stories and the arts are to us and um, oh, why yeah. we need to continue making yeah. good art and telling. Yeah, definitely. I think it's not even about escapism of the story for mm. me. It's more about communicating with another person. They're, they're mm. uh, you know, having a mind-to-mind connection with the author mm-hmm. so that then you're able to understand what their roadmap is mm-hmm. for the human experience. Like so many different things have happened to me where, uh, you know, we've, I've gone to areas where mentally or I've just been like, not in a good place. And then when I read a book, like, for example, uh, Haruki Murakami is a great example mm-hmm. of some magical realism. And the way yeah. he, wells, uh, he way weaves in dream landscapes and all these kinds of things, and shamanic or spiritism, all these kind of things, mm-hmm. some of his Kafka on the Shore particularly mm-hmm. comes to mind as uh, something that weaves in, uh, he weaves in those tropes. But then for me, at least, that really helped me to understand Wind Up or Chronicle, helped me understand how these are legitimate, you know, I know something about it just really connected with me about the human experience and about, you know, the psychological journey and the and the and mental journeys that we take. Yeah. yeah. And I think also that serialized short form or TV, but let's be honest, serialized yeah. short form that <laughs> yeah. we consume, not mostly not on television. To me, it was always exactly like sports. You know, mm. I think sports provide a, a way of communication for people of bonding of bringing people together it's a it's a it's a church you know like soccer mm-hmm. uh, football around the world is practic is a religion and i think that when you get a show like game of thrones even though i didn't watch it i love the fact that it was a shortcut for people for intimacy and especially mm-hmm. for people who struggle with intimacy and i think yeah. that's why so many you know men particularly have such a a connection with sports is because it it provided a safe mm. space for them to have intimacy in a society that tends to say like 
don't show emotion or, mm-hmm. or show weakness. And I felt like those shows that go on for years and years and years, it's like this instant way of connecting and having mm-hmm. a deeper level of intimacy that you may not have in other places or to just you see someone on the train watching this show and mm-hmm. you could sit down and instantly have a conversation with them and it wouldn't be strange. Mm. It, and so I, it's just lovely that these are things that help us to become more intimate with each other rather than isolating us. Yeah, yeah. And one way our listeners can create a kind of <laughs> sense of community is by listening to Radio Free Brooklyn uh, and connecting with us. Uh, Radio Free Brooklyn is a 501c3 nonprofit organization whose mission is to provide a free and open platform to our community and promote media literacy, education, and free expression. We rely primarily on donations from listeners like you. So to help support our mission, we invite you to make a one-time donation or monthly pledge at readyforbrooklyn.org slash donate. Every cent helps us continue to stay on air. So please support independent community media by pledging whatever you can afford. All contributions are tax deductible to full extent to law. Again, that's readyforbrooklyn.org slash donate. And go to readyforbrooklyn.org slash truth to power to uh, connect with your fellow community members about the different 75, this number, episode 75. So 74 previous episodes will be up soon. Uh, or the last episode will be up soon. And, uh, and you can find this, the other ones there. Um, Ready for Brooklyn is celebrating its fourth anniversary party on June 14th. Start time is 6 p.m. Um, end time around 10. Uh, do you know Ready for Brooklyn has been on the air for four whole years? We're celebrating our anniversary of the blowout party. Uh, Friday, June 14th, uh, 6 to 10 at Trazen's Bar, 222 Bushwick Avenue, off the L Train Monroe stop. Uh, we're a nonprofit. We love a donation. If you spent any time with us, please come by. We'll, we'll love to meet you. And uh, no worries if it rains. We have an indoor option. All the info is available at our website, readyforbrooklyn.org. Um, yeah, yeah. So as we start to wind up, we'll get some last comments or if you want to direct people to your website, tests or. Yeah. Yeah, great. So um, my website isn't super active, but people uh-huh. can follow me on Twitter. Just Tess Congo. Easy to find. <laughs> yeah, good. Yeah, yeah. And do you have any readings coming up or anything like that? Um, nothing in the immediate future, but uh-huh. I'll keep you guys posted. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I actually have a reading coming up July uh, 10th. Oh, great. Where uh, are you reading? In uh, Astoria. Nice. So I'll look up Poets of Queens. Mm-hmm. Uh, I forget the, I think it's Vintage is the uh, bar. I'm pretty sure, but uh, look up Post of Queens. I'll be uh, reading the story uh, in the evening hours. So, and uh, Jessica? Yeah, I've always always got workshops going for meditative writing and meditative screenwriting. Um, so, yeah, you can find all of that information at meditativewriting.org. Good, good. So, uh, we usually go out with the song. Why don't you set up a, a little bit of a song and okay. tell us a little bit about uh, what you're selecting a song and such. And Sure. So, um I have periods where I don't have much energy (laughs) and the song I find is like a really good build-up song for the day. Like if I'm just having trouble like getting ready for the day, I'm like, all right, here's this one. It has a more upbeat tempo and you just have to play. Yeah. Good, good. Um. Battle is a song that lives underground. I've heard it all before. Thank you guys. So hope to hope to have you back on Mondays at 8 a.m. Enjoy the song. It's called the Climb, right? The climb? Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Cool. Cool. Enjoy. Thank you guys. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. What it means to belong. That's all that we want. I've heard you run away. 
just to be the same as all that they want I heard that you were gone by the morning So I climbed to my phone to whispers hard no more So I climb to my phone to whispers hard moments. 